Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such and Neil Almond, and together we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like Mathematics Curricula Part 2? But first, Neil, what are you reading for? So I've got currently got two things on the go. My professional reading um, is a paper about early reading by Liana C. Erie, all about orthographic mapping. Um, recently, there was quite a bit of a, a nice, I think, Twitter engagement, you know, really kind of showed how people should engage professionally on Twitter, um, all about some meanings about what orthographic might have meant. Um, full respect to the person um, who posted something that I think both Chris and I didn't quite agree with. And when this person kind of tweets out, it, it's, it's one for you to not to rush straight in, but to go back and check, you know, the, the source material to make sure what you think is right is right. So yeah, I've been um, rereading orthographic mapping in the acquisition of sight word reading, spelling, memory, and vocabulary learning, which sounds uh, an absolute treat. Um, I think if anyone wants to read it, if you just read, there's a nice little paragraph um, towards the end that just says, if you everyone wants to, um, you shouldn't be encouraging orthographic mapping in your early reading. If everyone just reads that one little paragraph about what it means for your instruction, then I think we'll be doing better than, we'll all be um, best off for that. Uh, kind of a fiction, I've kind of been reading uh, King Leopold's uh, Ghost, which is all about um, King Leopold II of uh, Belgium and all the kind of atrocities that he uh, was responsible for uh, in Congo, in the Congo, uh, in the late kind of 1880s, 1890s, and a bit more than that. So yeah, really interesting. African kingdoms in history is kind of my um, Achilles heel. It's something that I think I should learn more about, and this has been recommended a few times as a text I should go and read to find out more. So that's what I've been reading. Uh, so I've been reading a few bits and bobs, nothing quite as uh, hefty, I think, as either of those, but something just as valuable. A, a chap called Josh, Josh Goodrich has got a series of blogs on instructional coaching. Um, so far, he's released three parts out of four. I'm waiting for the fourth part with bated breath. It's been a really valuable journey through his thinking on instructional coaching really digestible well worth checking out if you're interested in how to develop teachers kind of alongside that i read an essay or reread an essay i should say um, which is from a collection called the caliph's coin which is an essay on the importance of narrative in history teaching it's, yeah, again, if you're someone who's building a history curriculum or is interested in history teaching more generally and how you can interweave narrative into that, then I'd highly recommend checking out The Caliph's Coin as an essay. Nice. Do you want to ask me, Chris? Oh, yeah. Sorry, is it? Oh, yeah. No, you don't get her. <laughs> so, Kieran, what are you reading for? Nothing as strictly academic as you guys. And um, actually, I haven't read anything that you've mentioned so I'm definitely going to go and look for those and um, particularly the stuff about King Leopold II because then um, that's something that's come into my sort of historical reading recently and um, I, I had no idea about some of the stuff that was going on um, whenever Belgium were building an empire so um, yeah I think that, that sounds like one for 
one worth checking out. Um, I've been reading Making Numbers and um, using manipulatives to teach arithmetic, which is a classic in terms of um, basically if you want a really accessible but thorough guide to using manipulatives with early number in particular, you know, you can't you can't go wrong um, with this with with this book. Um, so it's Rose Griffiths, Jenny Jenny Back, and Sue Gifford. Um, and essentially, it is, you know, if you can think of the mathematical idea, and if you can think of the manipulative, it's in here, you know, from bead strings to Cuisinart staircases, and, um, you know, it, it's definitely well worth checking out, no matter how long you've been teaching for. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's real. So I, I go back to it all the time. I think I must have read it. Well, I can't remember how many years ago now, but, um, you know, every year I'll go back to this and I'll explore it with a new teacher. And uh, yeah, it's well worth checking out. I, I love the concision of its definition of number sense. If I remember correctly, it just kind of spells that out in its three terms. I thought, oh yeah, okay. I feel like I've got a grasp of that now. So yeah, sorry yeah. to kind of jump in there, but it is a really good book. No, no to jump I on that as well. That's kind of definitely a definition that I've used with our kind of early years, year one kind of team when we've kind of been looking at some of these things as well. It's kind of just really concrete as to what do we mean when we say number and numberness. So yeah definitely worth a look at nice so yeah i think every school needs at least one copy if not more you know because it, it's invaluable um cool so the the main bulk of this episode is going to be part two of the discussion chris and i had with regards to mathematics curricula um, mm -hmm. and i suppose the first question coming from that chat is how should schools accommodate for the key aspects of maths that require little and often practice, you know, sort of to complement the standard lesson structure? Um, I think I'll follow that towards you, Neil, first. So I think the first of all is to make sure it's really spelt out and in whatever you use for your maths curriculum, that these are things that should be done little and often for kind of my experience of using a few um, schemes some more well known than others these things are kind of they present themselves as blocks so it might be um, um you know you've got five six hours perhaps on number bonds between 10 and 20 and then it's kind of never stipulated that this is something that should therefore be carried on little and often to ensure that repetitiveness and all that spaced practice is kind of in there so I think one thing, I don't want this to be a all schemes are evil kind of thing, but I think it's kind of quite helpful for either the maths lead or the schemes to kind of take it upon themselves to be like, do you know what, this kind of content, number bonds, um, you know, from five, 10, or well, from, you know, all the way from that to five, all the way through 20, um, key division facts, key multiplication facts, all these kinds of things you know should be stipulated from the outgo yes you want to teach them as a block when you're almost you're introducing these things as kind of brand new novel ideas but there is that expectation then that these things are valuable to dip in kind of every i don't know 10 minutes every day until they are at that point where they are automatic and then from there i know uh, speaking from our schools we, we do something called a maths meeting which is tends to be just a 15 minute uh, session normally after lunch where you are expected to do that kind of rapid recall of certain key things that often go by the wayside um 
things like, for example, there's always tends to be a question on SATs, like add up the days of the month of January, February and March. And the amount of kids actually that fall down on such a simple question because of that kind of key understanding of right, how many days are there? You know, I, I get the whole, the, the knuckle trick is one that kind of comes out then quite often at that point. Um, but yeah, and I think obviously we don't do these things for, um, to get them through SATs, but I think it kind of validates a point, this kind of thing that we assume should be there. Like, why would we not assume that a 10, 11 year old knows the how many month, days are in each month? So I think it's just kind of there, make sure that we really enforce which content deserves this little and often, decide how that should be, whether that should be a whole school thing like a mass meeting, or whether that's just teachers using their professional judgment and saying, do you know what, we're coming in from um, break now to settle them in, let's do some number bonds. Or, you know, I used to get mine chanting times tables to and from the classroom when we go into assembly, for example, and just kind of finding times in the day where you can do that kind of thing. So that would be my initial response to that first question. If I may, I'll kind of jump in there. I think, yeah, for me, you've hit the two most important ideas. The fact that it needs to be spelled out clearly in the curriculum, what stuff requires or most requires little and often practice. I think it's fair to say that everything can benefit from it, but there are some things that really can't be learned without it. Key number facts like um, number bonds, multiplication tables and the related division facts are a great example. I think the second thing you mentioned about it ideally being a chunk in the timetable, you talked about maths meetings, but having a stated part of the day, be it morning activity, just after lunch, whenever it may be, I think those are the two key ones. I'd probably add in terms of how you can then accommodate that. I think part of that comes down to motivation as well. How can you keep it interesting? How can you make it something that children are really gagging to do? I think where in doubt, finding ways to make it, to gamify it, if you will, to, to make it playful. To it, I'm not going to say I'm a big fan of competition between children in a classroom, but children competing with themselves in order to say, like, oh, you got this many yesterday, can you get this many more today? I think that kind of personal competition isn't the end of the world. And I think for a lot of children, it could be quite motivating, used very carefully, of course. I would also say that linked to what Neil said, routines is a big deal, because if it doesn't matter if it's 15 minutes in a day, if the teacher themselves does it is meant to have this in their timetable after lunch, but they take a little bit too long over the register and then they've got to get changed for PE and it doesn't quite fit in. A teacher sticking to a routine and sticking to that timetable and knowing that that's protected worthwhile time is a key point. I guess the last thing I'd say is that things like numbots, times table rock stars, being able to squeeze those into your school day or dare I say as well, encourage that at home if you've got the, um, the equipment that allows that to be the case can be a really good way to bring that in and I guess that links to my idea about it being playful and it being gamified yeah I think Chris pulls on a really interesting point there about the gamification and obviously we have things like numbots we've got things like timetable rock stars so there's probably a I think probably quite a strong case at primary level to say do you know what your maths homework isn't to kind of necessarily to practice all of these other kind of skills that we naturally probably give oh you know you we've just taught you fractions so here's some homework, some additional kind of fraction work, but actually it is to make sure that all those children 
you know, your homework is literally just to spend 10 minutes on numbots, 10 minutes on um, time tables, rock stars per day, or then there's a, an after school club to accommodate those children who perhaps can't because of issues at, issues at home or they don't have devices, whatever it may be. And I think what schools may find is that they would actually see uh, an increase in kind of um, children's attitudes towards mathematics because they have that security of knowing those key facts. So they're going to access those higher order mathematical concepts quicker. Yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Um, the, the, one of the first things I said to my teachers, what, about four years ago now, was it doesn't matter when in the day things like retrieval practice happen, you know, so long as they, they do happen. And, you know, I think that point about finding time and space in the, in the, the sort of the daily routine um, is a really important because th there can be times when not much is happening and you can fill it with, you know, short, sharp activities, you know, that, and I think as long as teachers feel they have the freedom to be in charge of their own timetable, because the curriculum can be quite full. Um, and so the, the route I went down was I said, okay, this is what we'd like to happen. You tell me when's best. Some people it's before lunch. Some people it's first thing in the morning. Some people it's before they go home. Um, but as long as we know exactly, like they say, like they're, they're using times tables, rock stars. I don't mind when it happens because it doesn't make much of a difference. And um, I suppose one thing, I'm, I don't know if I got consensus on this, but I don't think you always need an hour for your math lessons. And um, I know it might, it might be a bit of a hangover from the national strategy, but certainly in key stage one, I can get across quite a lot in 30 minutes, you know, 30 minutes of back and forth between me and the kids that almost frees up another half hour that you could, you know, for instance, change the subject altogether. And then you've got wherever you were going to do that, you can put in some of that daily and often maths. And so I think it's just about making it work for yourselves. And if you know, you know, this is what I want to achieve and this is the time I can achieve it in, you know, that's, that's, that's the approach I would take, you know? And everyone knows the curriculum we're following Everyone knows where we want to be by the time we get to July. And then what happens in between, I think, depending on the teacher, you will give more autonomy in terms of what happens, you know? And um, yeah, because if someone's new and they're finding timetable management difficult, I will suggest times that I can see in their day. But if someone's really experienced, well, then it's up to them. And I'll know they're doing stuff because you will see it in the, in the progress the kids make. And um, yeah, so I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Um, I went to see a school in Sunderland just before the first lockdown. And I think it must have been two weeks before we locked down and we didn't think we were going to get to go. And with their nursery reception, the first five minutes was a really quick subitizing activity. Um, and then they would move into the bulk of the lesson. And so little and often they were doing, you know, the, the stuff that they had deemed important at that point in their journey. And um, I don't really think you can ask for more than that. Um, I guess I'm thinking what are people's thoughts on perhaps, you know, being quite systematic and detailed as to what those little and often bits should be, you know, if key stage two, if an outcome by the end of uh, year two, rather, is that they need to know all their number bonds to within 20, 
would you go for a route of saying, well, we're going to dedicate autumn for 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and then et cetera, et cetera? Or do you think it'd be better off to say just, you know what, here's the outcome. As long as you do it by then, we don't really mind how you do it, whether that's just doing all of them in autumn and then kind of just doing again more little and often, little and often, or just kind of little and often, perhaps just 10 to 13 and then 14 to 16, kind of the following term. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Chris, on what you think that would be, what that would be like. I think this ties back into the, obviously it ties back into the number bonds discussion we had um, a little while back. I think it comes down to how you're teaching number bonds. I think there is a tendency for teachers to think it's just, here are the questions, do lots and lots of them. But my preference is to break those down into smaller skills. So for example, once on the assumption that children already are comfortable with their number bonds, six, seven, eight, nine, up to 10, then I'm looking at uh, doubles, particularly double six, double seven, double eight, double nine. Once they're comfortable with those or as they're approaching comfort with those, I'm looking at near doubles. Once I'm, um, I, I then look at things like, can you add a number quickly to 10? And if you can do that, that's the first step towards being able to bridge through nine, bridge through eight. So over time, I'm building up these calculation strategy, strategies step by step. And then the end goal is, here's just a load of number bonds inside 20, both addition, subtraction, but there are definite steps along the way. One I forget there, and one that's one of the most, in my view, the most important is helping children to recognize that when they are attempting a subtraction, that you can understand it or perhaps get to it quicker through understanding the related addition. I found that when you say something like, what's 13 subtract seven, once children have grasped that that's, you know, the idea of additive inverse, and they can go, oh, that's that means what goes with seven to make 13, they tend to get it to it quicker. So I think there's lots of little sub skills along the way. My preference is to break those sub skills down and kind of teach them almost to a level of expertise one at a time, little and often, and then get to the number bonds at the end. But I, 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 I can't with hand on heart say that that's definitely better than mixing it all up. What about you, Kieran? I think a lot of the time, it is teacher judgment, but increasingly, particularly where children are struggling, reducing the amount that we're expecting by a certain point, I think, can be really useful. For instance, there are only a certain number of unique times table facts. And rather than giving those children everything, it's looking at that, I suppose it's a staircase, isn't it? Um, and focusing bit by bit and sort of saying, okay, this is where we want to be by the end of year four, and then almost working back. Um, and I think to an extent, it needs to tie in with your larger and wider curriculum. You know, for instance, we had that conversation during the quiz where we talked about um, time and multiples of five. And mm -hmm. so I think where you teach time and where you teach time to five minutes, you know, 15 minutes, I think is impacted by that. Um, so I think particularly where people struggle, I'm more specific in my advice. Um, but I also know that there's a story to work through on numbots that will take you through all of the mental methods and more that we expect our pupils to know. And equally, the automatic training mode, we, we know which points we need to be at before we get to the end of year four. Um, and so that does a lot of the, the thinking for us because, I've had the fortune of playing numbots with my oldest 
And every time I look at them, oh, yes, that's what I that's that's what I'm going to teach my kids next week. And I can't think, you know, they, they've really chosen the most fundamental mental processes and mental the ways of thinking and broken them down into this game that kids really love playing. And so, you know, I've had, you know, when I see my oldest and, you know, when he says something like 13 um, minus seven, I can see him jump into 10 and then jump in on um, and sort of working out that difference. And um, yeah, so yeah, in summary, it depends on the situation, but I do see the value in being really specific, particularly with inexperienced teachers and with um, pupils who are struggling to get those bonds and get those key facts. Yeah, I think you bring up something else that I always find quite interesting, and that's that automatic uh, setting that's on, uh, I know it's on times tables, rock stars, where instead of saying, you know, you are just going to do the two times table, obviously the countless data that um, times tables, rock stars have, like you can almost get the children to self-learn these times tables to a degree, how much you know, conceptual understanding they may have of them, you can question. But if you ask them what seven times four was, they would be able to get that. And I always kind of find, so where we are right now is that we um, kind of say, you know, oh, in this term, you're going to learn times tables two to three. And actually, I wonder if we just said, no, do you know what? It's going to be from year two, everyone gets a times tables rockstar uh, account, and we just click that button that says self-teach. They do that initial quiz and then they just kind of go through it. And I kind of wonder whether that would make a difference or have a an impact on their learning, whether it is because, um, you know, it takes it at their own pace. But obviously a teacher can, if they're going too slow, a teacher will be able to see that and they can intervene. It's obviously not going to replace any teaching of multiplication, but I think if you want to get that, I think, um, you know, from my experience anyway of teaching uh, early multiplication, it is a concept that students do struggle with. And so I'm wondering, so it almost kind of gets to a bit kind of takes a few of Chris Bottom's ideas where, you know, if you had these children who already knew their two times table before you went to um, teach them at a conceptual level, whether that might make a difference. And then, of course, you wouldn't have that issue perhaps at year four where it's like oh no you know we need to get them all up to their times tables it might be by the time you know they leave year three because this automatic mode's always been on and that's what they've been using and working towards um they might be there already so i think it would be an interesting school perhaps to, to do a little kind of action research project on the impact of just throwing that switch on and seeing what happens yeah i've, I've kind of always assumed and I think this is probably just my own bias that that development of automatic recall with multiplication has to be the, like the final step at the end of conceptual understanding. Open question. I wonder the extent to which that is a bias of mine just through years of experience rather than something that is necessarily the height of efficacy. That's an interesting one because I think the national curriculum has the laws of arithmetic coming in somewhere around the point at which the government's going to test pupil knowledge of times tables. So you would need a pretty fluid um, segue from one to the other um, if you're going to keep to their timetable. But it'd be, it'd be really interesting to see because I think, you know, in the non-statutory guidance, it um, it references it quite quite late on in the middle of in the middle of lower key stage two, I think. Um, I think one one final thing before we move on to the next question 
one of the one of the first sessions I did with our teachers was about retrieval practice and the why of retrieval practice. Obviously, Neil, we've talked about how we like to explain to the children why we are yeah. we're using retrieval practice. And I think our teachers took it on board really, really well in terms of we said we don't know exactly when the optimal spacing is, but here is an idea based on Ebbing House, based on studies that have taken place since. And so if you're thinking about, you know, so we, we focus really on those essential facts, but if you're thinking about anything else that needs to be covered little and often, I think giving your teachers a, a sort of a, a reasonable grounding in the, in the, the underlying reasons for those decisions, you know, and, and what we've learned from cognitive psychology, I think can go a long way too. Um, and actually when I was reading retrieval practice too, that was one of the things that Kate Jones recommends is making sure that your teachers know. Um, I, I felt really good about myself because that was one of the first things I did. And mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, it was not long when I, when I read that bit. Absolutely. And I think just put on that point, um, if you haven't read Damien Benny's blog about trying to work out the optimal spacing, obviously, you know, a lot of research in there, but at the end of the day, it is a mathematical formula and it's not going to be perfect for everything. But I think the, the level of detail that he goes in to try and work out what that optimum spacing gap is, is quite something and definitely worth a, definitely worth a visit if people haven't read that. Um, the only last thing I want to mention on this is that I really think an underused online tool for um, specifically for multiplication is Complete Maths' free multiplication tool that's online. It's one that doesn't really, you don't really, unless you really look around the website, you don't really kind of find that section, but the conceptual understanding that it tries to build in the sense that it asks you to make the answer. If it's eight times seven, it expects you to give the answer as an array, not just kind of type in the answer of 56. So I think there's a nice kind of almost transition point that you could use and say, right, okay, I can see that you're really secure in times tables rock stars when you're doing your four times table where it's just expected to, you know, give a numerical answer, but actually maybe then transitioning them onto um, the complete mass one where there is a bit more conceptual understanding might be a bit more beneficial for those students once they've had a, you know, a bit of instructions to what, um, you know, multiplication actually is and, you know, building that fluency of then of this conceptual understanding. So I thought that might be a good one to throw out for um, viewers. Cause I kind of threw that to um, a few of our teachers across our trust and they didn't, didn't know it. And Shannon Doherty as well, um, didn't know about it either. So she doesn't know about it. There's might be a chance that um, others don't. So throw that one in before, um, before we end that kind of question. So I guess then we'll go on to question two and it's kind of something close to, um, I think quite close to my heart and kind of how I'm, I like things to be codified and I like there to be a, a set language around kind of teaching and learning. And I get that you know, it's not always possible, but mastery is a word often applied to, to mathematics curricula. What does this mean? And what are the actual practicalities of trying to put a mastery curriculum in place? Christopher, do you want to take that one first? Obviously, there's a lot of um, apparent definitions of mastery out there. But for the sake of this conversation, I'll have a go at defining it as I suspect we are happy with. Um, and then you can chuck in some bits and pieces before perhaps I go on a little bit more. Mastery is effectively at its heart a style of learning that ensures that every child that you are teaching at a given point, be it one or 30, 
understands what it is that you are hoping for them to grasp and that you are well aware that they have grasped it before you consider moving on. I would say that's about as concise a way to put it as I possibly can. Uh, what else would you add to the definition before I perhaps talk a little more? I kind of noticed that you said style of learning and I thinking of a few people who might probably disagree and that it is more of a model of schooling as opposed to a style of learning in that I think you can have teachers within a classroom who are implementing some sort of mastery structure as you kind of explained it but whether you could actually then call that mastery learning if everything else isn't in place and what's come before isn't hasn't been done through a mastery approach and what's going to happen afterwards is a true mastery approach I might gently challenge you on that ever so slightly yeah no I think that's fair enough I think when I talk about it as a style I really mean exactly kind of a mode of learning if you will the idea of saying in comparison to what's sometimes described as a conveyor belt where you teach what you teach at a given pace in order to get through the content this in contrast the the pace of the content i don't like the word delivery but forgive me on this case but the, the pace at which you deliver the content to the children reacts entirely to the grasp of the children in front of you i would say that's the heart of mastery um i hope i do think that across the country including mine that pedagogical knowledge related to mathematics could be better though i don't tend to blame teachers for that i think the system has um, a lot to answer for. I think it's true that quite often children do move up through the curriculum quicker than they need to and that we don't develop certain foundations in mathematics as carefully and as for as long as we could do and also that generally we tolerate too high a failure rate in our schools when it comes to mathematics across the board. For me and in my context I think there what mastery is to me is almost a disposition. Um, and it's the relationship between curriculum, pedagogy, and pupil prior knowledge. And I think your disposition that, that overrides our, sort of the umbrella above everything is the expectation that the vast majority can attain well. And then I think from there, it's about your expectations of your curriculum and in particular the pace at which we should go through it because I think that's the first change you can make towards a mastery model of schooling because when I started teaching you had to try and get a kid from level one to level five as quickly as possible and so there will be lots of teachers who have been doing that for a very long time and and so for me using the disposition of that all children can can achieve well, but the vast majority can. It's thinking about, well, actually, this isn't a race. We don't need to race through this. We need to make sure that the important things are done really well because things do become easier further down the line. You know, and we may not see that because it may be at GCSE level that things are becoming easier because they don't have to spend so much time over the fundamentals again. But I do think identifying that which is important and teach it really well. And then where pupils don't have the prior knowledge, it's then what do we do for those children? And in my opinion, it's giving our strongest teachers 
to our pupils who struggle the most. Um, and so those three things in relationship with each other are the steps, are, that, that, that's what mastery means to me. And I know it's not in anyone's definition per se, but that's how I approach it because I think that's how mastery of the subject is possible from the largest number of pupils. Yeah, I mean, I mean, taking that as a definition of mastery, I don't think anyone, I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. If people ask me what I think about mastery, I'd actually consider myself something of a mastery advocate. The point I would make is that I think there is genuinely the nature of teaching with any sense of pragmatism is recognizing that there is there are two ends of a spectrum. At one end of a spectrum is a curriculum that moves on at the pace it's gonna move on, irrespective of whether children have understood a given thing. At the other end of a spectrum is every single child, we do not move on until every single child has learned every single thing, which I actually think in some ways takes a, maybe that's me taking a slightly naive view on what learning is as well. But those are two poles of a spectrum and I'm definitely more towards the mastery end of it. My understanding of mastery is that mastery doesn't really kind of claim, oh yeah, 100% will. My interpretation is very much just that it will shift that bell curve further towards the right. And that, yes, you're still going to have your um, top percentile, and you're still going to have your um, bottom percentile, but where that would be on a normal distribution or um, bell curve, it's going to be a lot more further shifted to the right so there's still that kind of expectation yeah you know what um these children aren't going to achieve the same as everyone else but we can do something better than um as christopher referred to as the the conveyor belt curriculum where oh we're in year three therefore we'll start year three content despite the fact that we know we have children who um can't number bond to 10 yet for example and there i think naturally it does make sense to go by the child's development and not try to get them to add three digit by three digit um numbers together you know you should be having some kind of implementation whether that's a, a um a short little input and then you get the majority of the class to go off and then you kind of just hold this little group back or these little individuals back and say Do you know what we're just going to do something that's similar but different so it might just be uh, double digit 10 take away single digit numbers whatever so there's that there's it's related to the actual content that everyone else is there but it's catered for the developmental need of that particular child i've got a paper by gusky uh, really quickly so benjamin bloom codified uh, what mastery looked like and gusky um, works kind of under benjamin bloom and under um, a title a uh, part says misinterpretations of mastery. Um, you know, it says here quite, you know, I'll read it to you. So teachers, so, so these efforts focused only on low level cognitive skills, attempted to break learning down into small segments and insisted that students quote unquote master each segment before permitted to move on. Teachers were regarded in these programs as little more than managers of materials and record keepers of student progress. Unfortunately, similar misconceptions or similar misinterpretations of mastery learning continue today. Nowhere in Bloom's writing, however, can this um, narrowness and rigidity be found. So I thought that was quite an interesting one, perhaps just to think about that. And again, you know, this idea of mastery for me, and it's been around two and a half thousand years, all the way back to you know, Aristotle. Um, and obviously then Bloom codified it in the kind of early 
19, mid 1960s. So perhaps somewhere between there, there have, you know, as things evolve, things have um, changed slightly. But I thought that was quite, when reading that Gusky paper and that particular uh, misinterpretation, I found quite interesting. Part of my career recently has been spent working with groups of children in year five and six quite often who have effectively got off the bus when it comes to mathematics and, and other subjects, but in particular in mathematics. And in a lot of cases, these are children who I've had to go back to the year one curriculum effectively and think, well, I need to build back up and see how far I can, can get with them. And taking this idea that I am a big fan of from mastery of the idea that as a basis, assume every child can achieve and given the correct circumstances, I was quite fortunate to see firsthand that if you have the opportunity to work with a group of children where they're at, there are a lot of children in our education system that have been let down by the speed of the curriculum who if given the chance to go back to the beginning and go through the steps again are absolutely capable math mathematicians who otherwise have been written off children who are talked about as if oh well they're never going to get expected standards by the end of year six so best of luck are children who are perfectly capable mathemat mathematicians and if they apply themselves can do exceptionally well when they get to GCSE yeah, and that there's a lot of wasted potential and being a bit more forgiving of myself a couple of years ago, perhaps the extent of my rhetoric on the subject was merely about frustrations with the curriculum itself being so closely tied to this um, conveyor belt model and thinking that if I was as powerful as I can be in my pro-mastery pro rhetoric, I might at least be able to shove the needle a little bit. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think one of the frustrations, certainly for me, is it, comes, it just comes back to accountability at the end of the day, doesn't it? Um, you could have all the well best intention of doing that. But if you're if you have um, senior leaders who aren't kind of, I don't want to say on board with this approach, but who don't kind of perhaps, as they uh, goes without saying, you know, massive generalization here, but perhaps who don't understand that math is a hierarchical subject and that therefore you can throw decimals at, at little Johnny as much as you want at year four or year five, but because he doesn't know place value, he might perform well, but nothing's really going to stick because there's, you know, he doesn't have that conceptual understanding to kind of make it, um, you know, to really assimilate it into his schema. So I kind of think there's that element there perhaps where we need to really think about actually the impact that that high level stake accountability of key stage two sats um and likewise key stage um one because i know many teachers you know there is that level of you know you need to get through the curriculum really quickly to revise ready up for the sats and so i'm um, hopefully with the uh the in what was it two three years time when key stage one sats um do disappear um I'm kind of, I need to go back through all the podcasts where I've said when you keep stage one sats disappear, you know, this is going to be an opportunity to sort out primary writing. It's going to be an opportunity to sort out maths. And I'm probably going to no doubt in five or six years time, eat some humble pie. But I think that is such a crucial time where you could think, right, we 
don't have this accountability measure. So I'm not too fussed, actually, if these children don't get master fractions or the geometry aspect. But if I know that they're coming up mastered the number aspect and they've truly mastered the place value aspect, then perhaps that time given towards that, which was taken away from the fractions, taken away from the geometry, the statistics element, that can then be made up later on down the line now that you don't have that accountability pressure um, going on you. But again, I'm happy to probably do an eat humble pie for that one in the next five or six years time because I've used that as an excuse of sorting out pretty much every educational beast that um, haunts primary education. When mastery kind of first started to come in in 2014, that rhetoric of all children all doing the same work was really, you know, hammered. And when you look at what mastery as a model of schooling is, um, it's true, but not true because within the mastery model as written by Bloom, you know, that you do your first um, uh, formative assessment and those that are okay, you say, do you know what, you're going to do these high, you're going to do these kind of extension enrichment activities, which those that have didn't past I think they use as 80% um, as a kind of uh, measure those of you who didn't get to 80% on that assessment I'm going to reteach it to you in a different way so straight away there's almost there's already that separation of you're all working at the same thing at the same time and I think that I get it and I think it's a really important point um, but I think in the long run that taking that so literally probably let down a fair few children in 2014, 15, 16, I think. Yeah, and that, that's your relationship with pedagogy because if you're a teacher and you're looking at that, that formative assessment and your decision-making is hampered by a paucity of things and directions to take it in, then the experience of those pupils is, is, is much different than when you've got your most experienced teachers. And I'll give an anecdote from conversation with a Singaporean teacher. And because essentially in Singapore, what they do is in primary one, they will do an assessment and then they will put the pupils who are struggling into a group for a couple of months and then bring them back in, phase them back into their regular class. And whether you agree with that or not, that's not really the point of the anecdote. Um, I asked them, I asked one of the teachers, you know, do you teach this group? And the teacher said, no, I, you know, their teacher's been teaching for 30 years. Their teacher is the best teacher in the school. You know, only the, only they have the experience necessary to teach these pupils who are struggling. And that really stood out to me because I think, although the chances of us having a teacher who has been teaching 30 years is slim in England or certainly slimmer. And um, one thing that I always want to do is make sure that our strongest teachers, and it goes back to, you know, I've heard secondary colleagues talk about the head of maths teaching bottom set rather than teaching A-level because they're going to do or have a much greater impact with bottom set. And I think the same applies in primary. Um, and one of the things that really stands out to me is some of the teachers, whenever I work with them, they take things in a completely different direction and make things much better than I could ever imagine. And one of our teachers spoke to me about how, because he taught the same year group multiple times, he could predict 
what was necessary to stop those issues coming down the line. And so he was feeding in the things that people stumbled on in six months time, you know? So he was in, in his little and often, he was predicting, you know, common errors, common sticking points, and then planning for it. And I think, you know, if people are looking for something they can take away and actually practically use, I think it's look at the structure of the school and who's teaching where, but also having foresight on your curriculum and saying, okay, in six months, we're learning about unit fractions. We need to know multiples of two. We need to know, um, yeah, multiples of four, for instance, depending on what you're going to teach. And then, and then putting things in place so that by the time you get there, you're almost one pre-teaching session away from taking as many kids along as possible. I'm not saying it's perfect, but, um, but when the conversation we're having now, that, that, that comes to mind. And it's something that since that conversation, I, I've seen maths in a totally different way. Um, because you're thinking, you know, our, our best teacher in the whole school, the one who models to all the other teachers, they take the, the, the group that's struggling the most. And I think that's a really powerful model. I guess to an extent that brings in the tricky subject. If we're talking mastery and we're talking about um, some of the discussion around mastery, that brings in the tricky subject of setting, really. I mean, do you, I've obviously already described a situation where I was able to teach five and six and they were struggling children. Under the current way that we teach in English schools by the, again, I use it under advisement, the idea of convey a conveyor belt model. The children themselves couldn't have achieved what they achieved and in the fortunate position I was in if I had still a group of children where I had some children who knew most of the content I was about to teach before I taught it and some children that needed to go back to year one. So I wonder whether, and again, we can always cut this if this is too controversial, but I wonder whether you guys have any particular thoughts about the idea of setting. I think I'm going to approach it from a different perspective, slightly differently. So I think the reason or the argument kind of against it is because of the, uh, the motivational aspects of that child having to be taken out and kind of go into you know, that, that physical act of going into a different classroom kind of is quite telling and there's the motivational aspects behind all of that thing for me my counter to that is also yeah okay i understand that um but how are they going to feel when they're 14 15 16 and they can't number bond to 10 or within to within 20 or a popular one we have the same um debates is regards to reading and the act of decoding as well. Um, so yes, you, you might. And again, I think because we're in a fortunate position where we can have such good relationships with the children because we see them all the time. In my old school, we did used to um, set for, for maths and I taught the, the bottom set at year six. Um, because of the relationship that we're able to build up with those students, found it less of an issue than perhaps I originally uh, thought I would. And you turn it into a motivational thing. I was like, do you know what? And I'm always kind of, I'm 
honest with them. You know, we are here, but just because you are in here does not mean that you can't do as well as those guys next door. We just need to work a little bit harder than them, which is unfortunate. It sucks, but the way the world is, I'm afraid I'm not one for painting a all kind of rose tinted. Everything is fine. All everyone is kind of going to grasp ideas equally as each other. So I think for me, it depends what I think if a child hasn't grasped um, 2D shape, I am probably not too bothered about it. Um, as in, I don't think that they should um, be set or streamed. So I think looking at it from not as in a carte blanche, oh, you can't do A, therefore I will make an inference that you also can't do B, C or D. I think it should, I have no problem with setting, assuming that there is that fluidity between different areas of mathematics. I think motivation, the way you describe it there, you're on the money because I think the part that we underestimate is children's social awareness and the extent to which how demotivation, how demotivating it is day in, day out to be in a maths lesson and to not succeed, which is effectively what the alternative is. When we say with um, setting or not setting, not not entirely, it isn't as simple as that, obviously, but both of them have demotivational aspects, is my point. And in one case, you can take a group of children and say, you know what, we've got some gaps in your earlier mathematics that we're going to work on and you're as capable as anyone else in this school, We've just got to fill those gaps. That is an incredibly motivational message, which doesn't ring true if those children are failing day in, day out, if they are just not quite getting enough time. The really interesting point, just coming back on this idea of mastery again, is that what you find when you work with these groups a lot of the time, not with all children, but with a surprisingly large amount of children, that actually they really do only need 20% more time on a given thing. And they consistently get that 20% more time. And you think, wow, was that was that really all you needed? Now, that isn't true across the board, but for a surprisingly large amount of children, they do really only need um, a chunk of time extra. And being able to provide that, either by adapting the curriculum or by just teaching it a bit more, is um, something that... I think can have a massive impact. And again, because of the hierarchical nature of mathematics, being able to get children roughly back to where you want them to be in key areas alongside their peers so that they can return to the classroom with a renewed sense of capability and confidence. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the positive arguments for setting. Though I'm by far, I would I'm certainly not what I describe an advocate of setting. Yeah. I just think that there are perhaps circumstances under which I wouldn't be, or I wouldn't automatically assume, assume that a school was doing it, was doing a bad job by their children. Yeah, I think, I think I'm ambivalent. I hope ambivalent is the right word. Um, but essentially there's, there's a real lack of empirical evidence as to whether streaming or mixed ability classes are more are better suited and um, so when i whenever i'm asked what i always say is that 
whichever one you choose, you have to really lean into. Um, and if a school were to execute setting in the way that you guys have described, you know, where it's not a case of, okay, the, these guys need stuff from year one, they're only going to do year one and they're never going to return to the, the level that their peers are working at, then I think that's a big no-no in terms of how um, you want to structure your school. Um, but if they were to do as you've described, then I think there are a lot of benefits, you know, so I have no preference either way. Um, but I think execution is, is essential, you know, because if, um, if it's poorly executed either way, then you're going to have a lot of children getting let down. Yeah. So that, that's where I stand. Along those lines, I remember a while back listening to um, someone talking about smile cards and how they had a kind of personalized learning journey effectively through mathematics and children could move at their own pace. That's, I mean, effectively a sort of mastery model, I'd say. There's an individualized nature to it. Um, at the back of my mind, I keep thinking, I wonder whether technology down the line has a role to play in this, not one that diminishes the value of the teacher, but actually requires them to be ready to teach anything across the classroom. I, I, I'd love to find out what that's like and how that works. I know in, um, it's really interesting, in some of the early um, Barton Mass podcasts, Smile comes up quite a lot and you have the likes of Dylan William, who I think loves it, and then you had the likes of Tom Sherrington, who, and don't quote me on this, who I pretty soon like wasn't a massive fan of it. But I think going up with what you've said about technology, Chris, I think we're in a potentially an exciting time in the fact that with Oak Academy, we do have a massive bank of what will be some high quality maths instruction, which is accessible to students either as an addition to what they are getting in school, which can be used at either at home as a homework or as a, um, some used as some sort of same day keep up where, you know, it might be that, um, you know, the role perhaps of the teaching assistant HLTA is there, you know, there to support and, and get them to, you know, they would play the video where it's been delivered by the teacher and the TA can be there to support them. Conversely, I think if we think about that mathematical model, uh, the mastery model where it mentions that, you know, after that first diagnostic assessment, some may have that enrichment. Well, it might be, you know, there might be a problem solving activity that a teacher has recorded for Oak, which they can do with the TA whilst you then give those children who didn't pass that first diagnostic assessment, that greater um, individualized attention that they may need. So as you say, I think technology does have an interesting place and there is a role that perhaps that what we have now with Oak can be quite, can be used perhaps to see, to get a mar some form of mastery model up and running. Yeah, I kind of spec, I, I think that's an interesting idea. I, I suspect that in terms of, I, you can hear the skepticism in my voice. Oh, yeah. I, sus, I suspect that we're a couple of decades away from that kind of level. I think it would need to be something so much more interactive in order to, and that's not an any way an insult to um, what Oak National Academy did. Uh, they were working under particular circumstances, 
but I think it would have to be something so much more. So a little piece of explanation is delivered over 30 seconds and children give a little bit of feedback to see whether they've understood that or whether they'd like it repeated in a different way or they'd like to see a different model. And then some questions are asked and then there's, and after a little while it says, nope, need a teacher here. And, you know, a light goes off somewhere. <laughs> Obviously this sounds a little, this is very much pie in the sky. I actually it's... worked on a project just like that. It was oh, really? The, it was in the, the, the developmental stage, and I don't think it was made in the end. But yeah, but that, there was um, you worked through various things. It took all the sort of fundamentals of Cogsci, and then at the very end, it was a case of a message went to the teacher and told the teacher <laughs> that then this child needed some sort of corrective from an app, from a human being rather than the computer. <laughs> We've kind of gone full circle because the Times Table Rockstars stuff that and you were talking about earlier neil is effectively a yeah, for, for a very limited area of mathematics is attempting to do that it's have you understood if not i'll give you these questions again obviously specific facts specific the development of recall of specific facts is a whole different business to all of maths but it's presumably the same principle just on a massively more complex scale yeah i would love to have seen that project here I mean, no. I figure the only way you would actually build something like this would you'd have to pay a huge amount of money to get real students answering lots of real questions and responding to individual models. And then it would have to be big data effectively. It would have it would have to be the same sort of technology that is used to target ads at yeah. people would have to be at play to try and I mean, I've honestly, I've no doubt that if it were profitable enough, it could it could already exist. But I don't think the profitability of it um, is, is going to make it remotely doable until the technology is so far along the line that it's just, oh, yeah, we could obviously do this. It'd be really easy. What do you think, then, Chris, about um, Oak National videos being used perhaps to improve the didactics of teachers? perhaps not and obviously because it's online it'll be different but you know by watching a video they might come across a resource that they haven't be come across before if you know i would it'd be interesting to know how many early years key stage one um classes you know don't have a 10 frame in them and if they watch this one video that does bring in the 10 frame and they think oh actually yeah, i can see how that works and you know, for early career teachers, they might watch that with a mentor who then goes, oh, yeah, yeah I agree. I used to use those back in day and then they went out of fashion, but I can really see how it works. And I've, oh, I listened to a podcast and a chat called Chris Such talks about 10 frames as well. So do you think perhaps some kind of element could be used there to improve teaching? I don't know, honestly. I've, I've watched enough to see the that they're, they're generally of a pretty good standard and there's bits and pieces in there that certainly weren't in my practice and could have been when i first started teaching i would be a liar if i didn't say that some of the history lessons and the that i saw that were delivered by oak national were basically a higher standard than some of the history lessons that i delivered as an nqt and that my children probably to an extent would have been better off had that video exist and existed and I just kind of press play and then I'd help them with the activity. The other side to that, of course, is that I like to think I'm quite a decent history teacher now and I wouldn't have got there if I'd only ever played Oak National. I know that's not what you're recommending here, the idea of them yeah. replacing teachers at all. I'm just, I'm just making a, a kind of a, a tangential point. 
generally speaking, though, I think the idea that they could be used for, to some extent, for professional development purposes is not far-fetched at all. I, I think quite often one of the best ways to improve is to look at a lesson on some level. For example, I, I spent a Saturday and then a Sunday, just because they're, they're brilliant, watching all of Gareth Metcalf's lockdown videos for years three, four, five, and six. Uh, once I'd got over the sense of inadequacy about my <laughs> own task, ability to set mathematical tasks that get children reasoning, I've always thought that the reasoning mainly comes about because of my interaction with them. And that's obviously an important element. But Gareth Metcalf's tasks, you're just like, oh, okay, you've that's just really, really cleverly put together. I've not, clearly not thought about the construction of mathematical tasks in enough depth. But once I got past that sense of, in, of inadequacy, just watching them was, I think, great professional development. So I, I, if you said that teachers could gain the same thing across a variety of subjects related to Oak National, I wouldn't necessarily be dubious. Yeah, I think... Um... In that respect, I think it can be really good for teachers to watch. And I'm a big fan of learning through seeing other, how other people do things. Um, but if I think about what a high quality curriculum has included in it, it's things like the 10 frame and the journey of the models and images the whole way through carefully sequenced. And so almost, like I said, bringing this full circle with episode one. If a school doesn't have that journey mapped out, you know, for instance, how the bar model builds sequentially from something that's quite concrete and quite straightforward to something that can be quite complex by the time you get to you know year six year seven and if that journey hasn't been thought out then we're not putting in place what our teachers deserve in terms of the guidance i think that was one of the questions we answered last time what, what is the minimum that we expect for our our least experienced teachers and i think if they're finding out about those ideas via Oak, then that's a less than ideal situation. I think there's lots we can learn from watching other teachers, but I would also make very, very sure that schools had the fundamentals in place. And that for me includes a very clear journey on how the representations travel from nursery all the way through to six. And so like in my maths conf, 25 talk I talk about how I will introduce subtraction as takeaway in key stage one and then in year three about halfway through year three that's when the bar for subtraction is takeaway and it's a very specific bar in my case is introduced and so that journey is only possible because of the sequence that we have in place and so that, that would be my caveat but yeah absolutely I, I know teachers who have watched videos during any of the lockdowns and thought, oh, there's something I'm going to try out. I think it's the it's the what we're going to try out that's really crucial because it's a key. You don't want schools to be abdicating their responsibility. And there are certain things that are fundamental that schools must do in terms of curriculum. And things like the 10 frame are definitely one of them. So I guess relatively briefly, a final question what advice would you guys give to someone who had that responsibility for maths curriculum and wanted to make sure they were doing a, a good job for their school? I'll fire that your way first, Neil. I think for me, 
is making sure that teachers are clear of any of the representations that you wish to um, convey in your curriculum that the models that you have selected or the minutes that you've chosen to make those representations come to life for the children that the teachers are extremely fluent on from my experience when it comes to the use of manipulatives it's kind of a we'll get the bot we'll get the box out and the kids can kind of almost have a bit of a free-for-all as to what they choose to use and it's almost like, as long as they're using a manipulative then the idea is that that is then aiding them in their mathematics journey um and I think actually it's far more better to actually consider and really condense those manipulatives to be like, right, these are the core representations that we want to uh, demonstrate. We need to make sure that these teachers are really secure in using them for these so that they can teach their kids. We are using Cuisinair rods and we are using Cuisinair rods to multiply fractions um, in year six because we know it works like this and it links to the area model that you would have done when you were multiplying um, with and air rods perhaps in year four or year five when you're doing it pictorially and you went to then did the grid method so they can really kind of make those connections between those um, ideas because so I think one thing we haven't kind of touched upon here is actually the construction of the curricula and how actually perhaps one way we can get to that mastery is by making sure that those links are so clear and so explicit for teachers that actually the idea of teaching ratio is really anything different to division doesn't actually exist. They can see those links. And so that therefore the models that they use are very similar to what they've done. So the amount of time taken to teach children, uh, you know, year six children ratio, you know, is reduced dramatically because those models are so clear and the manipulatives that they're going to use for those are so clear and kind of set out in stone. Nice. I think, um, in, in thinking deeply about primary mathematics, I say that for me, textbooks are a must, but that if you're not going to use a textbook, then you better make sure that what you have in place is equally as good. And the way we do that is by knowing our curriculum intimately. And we do that by living it and reflecting upon that lived experience. Like I've been very fortunate that I've essentially had four years of teaching in every year group on a regular basis and getting to know our journey inside out. And I think if schools are serious about the quality of their maths curricula and the quality of the provision they have in place, then it's about giving their subject leaders the time to get to know the curriculum as well as it needs to be known. And, um, you know, because if you are teaching in year six and you have one afternoon a term, then it's going to take you 20 to 30 years to get to know it as well as it deserves to be known. And so I think if schools are really serious, you know, they can't give, I know everyone can't give as much time as I have, but I think we should really consider how well do our, leaders know the curriculum because the better we know it the better we can support our teachers in, in the delivery so i think that's the last thing i would add um, it needs a slice of realism and um, i know because i speak in ideals quite a lot but i think even if you inch towards having more time for your leads and more time to get to know what you have in place 
then all of your pupils are better served. Chris? See, what I wanted to say was something quite mundane in comparison to that. And you've said something quite, I think, relatively profound. So I almost don't want to add it, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> you better keep up with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> given how much I value the use of manipulatives and other representations, something to think about as a maths lead is most schools have a maths cupboard. First thing, check out what's in there that you don't know about already. You might be surprised to find a lot of stuff that could be really valuable that hasn't been used. And secondly, if you're a maths lead who thinks we haven't quite got enough or even remotely got enough of this stuff, we'll store it in the maths cupboard and then teachers can fetch it when they need it. That works with certain things. It works with meter sticks. It works with kilogram weights. I find it doesn't work with the key manipulatives. It doesn't work with deans or I'm told this is another change in pronunciation for me perhaps Dinesh blocks I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't think it works with deans I think they need to exist in the classroom um, other manipulatives like double-sided counters 10 frames etc anything that children are going to use for several lessons they need to have a home in the classroom not just because you want to use them regularly but also because you want to show to children that for relevant bits of mathematics they are accessible so if in doubt, try to get stuff out of the maths cupboard and find a home for it in classrooms. Excellent. Couldn't agree more, Chris. And on that note, all that's left to do is thank Neil and Christopher for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And to thank everybody for listening. Until next time, see you later. No go. question from Twitter? I think the episode is long enough. <laughs> with that. <laughs> No, you wait. Once we've cut out or once you've got it back from me, it'll be 20 minutes long. It'll be. <laughs> it'll just be you two speaking.